This episode of The Ship Show is sponsored by PagerDuty. PagerDuty decreases alerting noise for operations and developers and ensures the right engineers are alerted at the right time. PagerDuty helps you identify common problems, allowing you to make system improvements proactively so you don't have to be woken up at 2 a.m., something nobody likes. Ship Show listeners can sign up for a free 14-day trial at www.pagerduty.com slash theshipshow. To ship, of course. Build Engineering DevOps release management and everything in between. It is the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Soberbuild Eng on Twitter and at SoberbuildEngineer.com. And also, uh, J. Paul Reed on Medium. I've been tweeting out some stuff I've been writing. Uh, who is here with me for episode 55? Hi, I'm Catherine Daniels. I am BeerOps on Twitter, and you can find me ranting and blogging about things at Bureau.ps. That's such a great domain name. Thank you. This is uh, Mike McGar. I am at Son of Gar on Twitter and the boring MikeMagar.com. I am Pete Chestnut at Pete Chestnut on Twitter, and uh, I don't blog because I'm lazy. And this is Seth uh, at Cheese Plus on Twitter, and uh, still still planning on actually publishing my blog at CheesePL.us someday. You got that one? Wow. Yeah. You all have, you all have better domain names than I have. Talk to, I, I don't. It came to me in a in like a flash as soon as it was like two months after .us opened, and I was like, whoa, this is. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I think I'm using the WTF domain. I might be the only one with a WTF domain ever. Is it cheslock.wtf? Oh, I went straight. You gotta, you gotta rep the brand. So I have Pete.wtf, and I have a, like a short link service, even though it's jokingly longer, which is <laughs> omg.pete.wtf. So every time I send short links to my coworkers, it's always like, oh my god, Pete, what the f***? <laughs> <laughs> well, I also heard randomly you, you have um, devops.fail. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a licensed domain squatter. I just need a good <laughs> idea to do something with that. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, crowdsource ideas for DevOps that fail. Anyway, so for episode 55, we actually looked at testing in episode 44 when we sat down with uh, Lennox Kramer. But it's a topic that is like super critically important. And so we are going to talk a little more about testing, do a little bit of a deep dive, see how some of the organizations we're familiar with do their testing but of course first up as we always do is the news and the views so going around the twitter sphere and the blogosphere this week or last last week i guess it was the google code shutting down dun 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 Another one bites the dust. I know. I wait. No, sorcerer is still around. Sorry. I was very underwhelmed when I saw this. Really? I had no feeling, only because well, I was without stealing Mike's because this is just kind of what they like. They build a service, half it for a few years, and then shut it down. The only time I ever was actually on Google Code was for iTerm two. I think, and they, I think that they, that they finally moved over. I'm not sure, but it was like that's where you went to get like iTerm two, and that was pretty much the only time I ever logged into Google Code. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Uh, I don't think I ever logged into it to be honest, but I read the article that was posted about it, their farewell, and they said that they realized it was mostly being used for like harassment and just nasty stuff these days because most projects have moved over to GitHub. And so they said it was too much work to you know maintain it and just keep all the trolling out of there. So you know that's kind of a respectable reason to shut it down, I guess. 
That's fair. I yeah, didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, I hadn't read that. that. Yeah, the one thing that that I do find a little bothersome or a little concerning, I should say, is that there are you know people have been pointing out a lot of projects started there, and so there's a lot of static links to things. And they said they were going to try in the announcement. We'll link to the announcement in the show notes. But they said in the announcement they were going to try to do something where the links that still were popular and actually getting you know hits would redirect in a reasonable way. I don't know. It's it's. Uh, eh. If that's really the reason that they're shutting down the harassment part, like that makes sense. But yeah, I think I think that would be a good thing. But I also think that that's just a great answer for Google to throw out, only because they have an established pattern of doing this with services. Right. Like remember, remember Wave. I I remember Google Reader. I'm still crying about Google Reader. Me too. Yep. Why did you have to mention it? Now I'm actually there's (laughs) we've reopened a whole can of worms. All right, we're we're gonna have a a funeral service in the next podcast for Google Reader. Can we burn? Can we burn an effigy? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, what does an effigy of an RSS feed look like? I think it has to be one of the giant RSS logos, the big orange one, like filled with candy. All right, filled with candy. Hmm. Are we well, burning? Is it a pinata? Oh, uh, you know, I, I realized I actually wanted a pinata more than an effigy, and I realized that setting a pinata <laughs> on fire just destroys all the candy, and now I'm sad. Oh yes. Oh. <laughs> Next up, speaking of uh, companies doing things that make you go, what the f***, omg.p.what the f***, HP is trying to patent continuous delivery. This is awesome. I love yeah. it. I love I, it. I would love to have seen Jazz Humble's response when he saw this and Dave Farley's response. I don't, when they, I don't even think he needed to. I mean, everyone else was, was saying, what the f***. Right, but, you, but can, you imagine, can you imagine in that wonderful British accent that Jazz has, him going, you know, well, what the f- HP? I'm <laughs> totally butchering that accent, but um, yeah. can you, that, no, that was that good. That was good. Had to be, had to be class. Wait, could we, could we hear that again? No, <laughs> <laughs> we cannot hear that again. No, no, that comes back for the bloopers reel this year. <laughs> Oh, it's okay, yeah. Paul. I will go at ChefConf. I will saddle up to Jez, and I'll get him to actually say that just so we can have a sound bite. And we oh, can actually we go. play yes. it over the episode later, like go like real post-production. Yes. No, we can make one of those like Vine memes that like just repeats. <laughs> we, we can, that's There we go. Now I know what I'm doing at ChefConf. That's my one thing I got to do. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, no, but I, it was interesting. I actually went to the PTO site and started looking honestly for other patents that HP – I basically looked at all the patents HP filed and started just kind of skimming through them. And there were a couple of patents. There, There's a list of other ones, like identification of a failed code change, performance tests in a continuous deployment pipeline. That was the one that got everyone's attention. I'm trying to remember from maybe it probably would have been ChefConf or something, but I'm pretty sure I remember uh, hearing Jez talk about, I thought it was HP and their like printer division yes. and how they did this continuous thing, which I thought was something that he was like helping them consult with on. No, that was Gary so, Groover. Oh, okay, maybe that was it. So I got super confused. I was like, wait, like they're patenting a thing that they basically learned from this guy who was consulting for them, but I think if, I think <laughs> if anything... Book on the thing that he's consulting on it, right? Right, right, <laughs> but I think if anything, this just screams for like how just terribly broken like this the, the US patent system is that this is like this abs- I don't want to say abstract concept but it kind of is you know could be patentable like what do you think they're going to do with the patent I think is the real question well all of those automated CI as a service companies would be a target I think a bunch of devops tools would actually be targets right oh yeah probably yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's the tipping point, right? Like, this is when you talk about the patent system now. So, what is it going to take before someone actually does something about the patent system, especially in regards to software? It's yeah, ridiculous. I was 
yeah, and and here's the thing. I was watching a documentary, and and the patent and trade office have, has for a long time had said, and this was actually about genetic patents, and they had refused those because you don't invent that, that right? right. Um, you know, and and what was interesting is is they got taken to court, and finally they reversed. They went the other way, and they're like, you know what? If we're not going to get any support from Congress or the courts, whatever you want a patent. They sort of, you know, to paraphrase. Andrew Schaefer, like you get the patent system you want or you get the patent system you show up for and they kind of went to the other side and they were just like you want a patent, whatever, fine, like have it be a free-for-all with lawyers. So that is a very astute question. Like every time you think that there's a weird patent that nobody, you know, that they won't get a patent for that it's like, it's a free-for-all now and they just let the let <laughs> let the Supreme Court sort it out. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of depressing. Next up we have uh, why video game coders don't use test-driven development and why it matters. Seth, why aren't you using test Test-driven development. Why aren't your coders using? Would you I'm like personally it? blaming you for all? <laughs> I, could, of this. I could do. I can do a dramatic interpretation of the time. So I had just read speaking of jazz his book continuous delivery and it was continuous integration. It was one. Of, so it was, it was one of the. One of the, it was probably 2007, and I had never read anything about either. And so I'm reading Jez's book, and I saw and test-driven development was mentioned, and I was like, Hey guys, why aren't we adding tests? And and what I was met with would. I mean, cackles, I think, would be the, the right... Did they burn you in a candy effigy? No, no, no. They didn't even take me seriously. <laughs> it wasn't a matter of them being mad that I asked. It was more of a, like, oh, really? Did, no, that's that's not going to work here. Right. Um, so the reason... Uh, there are lots of reasons that uh, game developers don't use tests. The, the biggest reason, honestly, is because games are a series of hacks... And if you actually did, so like a lot of the times, like with, especially on consoles or whatever, you're coding against bugs in SDKs because you don't really give a about whether or not the code is objectively good. You care about whether it runs on on the person's system. Right. Uh, And passing tests, while while there are totally places you can test, like the deployment side of things, you do a lot of testing. There's, there's, I mean, there's still a lot of validation. There, but it's mostly just validation. It has to be validation because testing a lot of the stuff is, I mean, a lot of the systems is just fundamentally hard to do. And so TDD for the, the kinds of complex interactions that happen in games tends to not be a priority. And part of it's due to lack of testing frameworks. And part, I mean, there's a there's a whole like, it's, it's a lot of tool related stuff. Like there's just not a lot of facilities for it. And I'd love for somebody to argue with me and say that there are, because I'm sure there are probably are. I'm just nowhere that I have developed games or am familiar with developing games has anything close to what what I like t- the kind of TDD I do with like Test Kitchen right. or even writing like you know doing TDD with like Ruby code. There's I haven't seen anything. So well, so you know what's interesting to me about that is every single time I've heard uh, arguments against TDD, it's that you know the the argument that I hear is like, well, we're a startup, we're moving too fast to basically write a bunch of stuff that is known to fail first. We just don't have time for that. Now we can argue about whether or not you agree with that, but certainly, and and you know, I, you I'm sure you can speak to this, Seth. That is the gaming that describes the gaming industry. This idea that we're moving too fast to well, yeah, you, know, you to, never you very much, like infrastructure because it's like oh, once yeah. you ship the game, it's done, 
right? Right, and you very, and even if you're doing online games, so you get a little bit more validation or, or focus on validation in specifically online games. Mm-hmm. So there is so like uh, when I was working on MMOs, that was a, the the testing methodology was, and even the approach to development was a lot more like you see in uh, let's just call it traditional software development, but you know where it's there's actually a plan and you we actually had a continuous pipeline. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of I mean there were a lot of those tools there. The problem is like I was saying earlier, you get down to a lot of there is the, the culture of that is there like that nobody wants to write tests in the game studio. I mean no I've not, I've never met a programmer who had been matriculated in the game industry that was like really about tests. They may have been about validation, but again, it wasn't you know unit like test coverage on stuff. And a lot of the times, it's because you were doing hacks. Like right. you're interacting with like GPUs and stuff, and sometimes oh, they do things yeah. wrong. And GPUs are a total mess, as we're finding with right. Yeah, <laughs> GPUs are just so it's like you've got like nested levels of messes, and there's probably some assembly in there too, just for you know and giggles. Right. So you don't actually like these interfaces aren't clean, and you don't right. actually care about maintaining API compatibility. I mean, I. I've seen programmers rewrite the entire engine in one night and not like compatibility with a past interface. It's like you don't need that. You don't care. Right. Right. Um, well, so there's I'd a lot of a lot of that that drives it. Yeah, I'd be curious if we have any listeners that work in the um, like online game space where there is at least it you know a little bit more incentive to write supportable code because you're actually supporting. I mean, you know, I know you know this, Seth. Like I, I've been playing a couple of video games recently and and they're kind of buggy, but it's like once you ship it and once you ship maybe the first three to six months of updates and all the online content is you know the DLC uh, downloadable content is out there like they don't support it anymore that, that then they fire everyone and move on to the next game so the thing it's is there's pretty, no incentive. it's a pretty it's, it was a pretty general pattern it doesn't happen across the board as much as it once did but there's definitely a, like a, a culture of that because you get like so like your kind of console space like there's definitely a the, the longer you leave it running the more you're paying like Microsoft or Sony to like maintain infrastructure for you so it's actually there's like there are levels of problems there's sort of there's like, it's just a hassle. There's like counter incentives to actually not. Support. Right. You don't really want to support it that long. Whereas, you know, the flip side on an MMO is you want to you want it to be successful. You want to support yeah. it for as long as you can. Um, yeah. And so you, your development methodology changes a lot because it's like the idea of patching something in an MMO is like, yeah, we're going to patch the hell out of that. You know. <laughs> yeah. Whereas like a and console break, game, you get very angry. Right. And for a console game, you don't want to do it. So there's, I mean, there are a lot of things, and there's like I said, there's not a lot of tooling around it. I, I'm curious to see with like this new generation of tools so like a lot of kids are using unity now and, and and by kids I mean just everybody but like using these newer tools and a lot of them are using different languages than than in the past and they these languages have better abstractions for testing so I'd be curious to see if that's that's changed in kind of like in, in a way in the indie space and I'm not not that all studios that use unity are indie but it's you know less the the AAA space which is to my knowledge never written any tests for anything that wasn't their <laughs> own like library like if it's their own library that that makes sense but I just haven't, you know, sadly, there's not a lot of it. I'm tr- fascinated by the whole, what you said, the culture. There's not a culture of testing, right? Like, everyone laughed at you. Yeah. And it's, pr- it's because that subculture is like, we don't necessarily believe in testing because we're all hacking. And, like, if the, maybe the tools were available, that would change slowly. It's it certainly got a possibility. Um, it's just that the, no one invested in the tools because, you know, it was, did the build build? Like, it, you know, right. compiler warnings are largely ignored. That was the first, like, little part of my soul that died was like, hey, I want to clean up all these compiler warnings. And everyone was like, no. Why? Why? Yeah. Well, they had to, they well, had to do it. They, it wasn't, you know. 
we'll definitely revisit this in the main segment because I think culture of testing is is a big deal. But we'll come back to that in a few moments, right, Mike? Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. And last up tonight, we have uh, apropos of our last episode on packaging, uh, we mentioned PackageCloud.io. They just shipped their enterprise service, which looks like you get all of the tasty Package Cloud features, but more more SSL, more encryptions, more securities for your your enterpriseiness. Did you all see that announcement? Yeah, this is great. Um, so cool. I- I went through, you know, so at ThreatStack, we, we have an agent, we deliver it, much like Chef and, and other places that have this, you know, package software package that customers download. We obviously want it to be in a repo. And so I actually looked at PackageCloud in the early days, and my only downside was like, eh, I really don't want to, like, host it at, like, threatstack.packagecloud.io, and I really don't want it on their environment. Yeah, it's signed and SSL'd, but, you know, I just, I want it all inside, I want it all internal. And so I actually reached out to them and say, hey, like, I hear you have this private thing, this enterprise thing, when is it coming out? And they're like, you know, what's your use case and everything else? And so, and they pretty much were like, hang tight, give us a few months and we'll have something soon. And so it's finally awesome to actually see that come out because at this point, like no excuse, like this, they're making it really easy for people, package your software, deliver it. Let's, you know, curl bash is okay. You know, we, we, we beat that horse to death, <laughs> yeah. but let's, let's, let's make some packages, people. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, really cool stuff there. Yeah. I, I, like, I like how they balanced out because you still can actually curl bash from Package Cloud IO to actually install the repos, which I think is like the most, the greatest thing is you actually curl bash to set up proper repos. <laughs> Which is, yeah. which is, I've been using them for, oh God, we, we, we used them when I was at Basho, and then uh, I've been using it, uh, Chef has been using it a little bit, and it's just, it's such, it's so nice if you've ever had to run Apt and Yum repos, because it's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, you have taken my problem away. Like, I just, yep. I run a gem command or something, and it just throws stuff at your service, and then I, I stop caring, and that's fantastic, um, because yeah. no one's, I mean, it's like, it's, I think when I saw it, I was like, is anyone going to pay for that? I'm like, oh my god, everyone's going to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. I know what I want to do later this week. <laughs> it's one of those. It's one of those. Like, why didn't I think of this? Oh. Anyway, yes. Congrats to those guys on shipping the enterprise stuff. Again, we'll link it to it in the show notes. You can check that out if you're in need of enterprisey package managementy stuff. Uh, next up, we're going to be talking about testing here on the ship show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. I'm your co-host, Mike. We're talking about testing and testing strategies. We started this conversation actually when I mentioned this thing called the testing pyramid. And uh, everyone, well, everyone on the podcast at the time said, what? Yeah, what is that? So we decided to table it and uh, bring that concept back. So I I think a good place to start is, you know, do you guys, first of all, do you guys test? Anyone test? I test. I test pretty, yeah. I want to test. I test religiously. Let's see. Testing the testing pyramid. Testing is good. Pyramid. This is testing is good. Um. Hey, Mark. Why don't you walk us through the testing triangle? Uh. You know, we'll link to it obviously in the show notes. But why don't you walk through what that is? I know we kind of briefly touched on it. So, so the idea behind the testing pyramid is to give guidance for teams on how to separate out your tests or where to put your emphasis on tests. And the idea is that unit tests 
should be your core emphasis because unit tests are fast and reliable. So they're at the bottom of the pyramid and they take up you know, roughly 70% of the effort, give or take. Above that, you have slower uh, integration tests, which will require standing up an environment or, or a limited environment and maybe access to some external resources. Those tend to be slower. And then you know, UI tests or manual tests tend to be a lot slower, flakier. And you want to put as little emphasis as possible on focusing on those types of tests. So a lot of times, I mean, I think we're all familiar sort of, I mean, I've certainly I've heard unit tests, but then there's like kind of, what do they call it? Uh, the other words they may have used, people, I, I hear integration tests. And it, so yeah, right? unit, unit testing, integration testing. And there's one other layer too, right, that I'm missing? Acceptance the functional test. Ah, acceptance test. Yeah. That's what it was. That's, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. So those are I would all consider I'm using air quotes here functional tests. So mm -hmm. anything that's going to test the functionality in your application, as opposed to non-functional tests, which are like performance, security, reliability, also important, just not testing behavior of your application. So acceptance tests are essentially likely going to need the UI, and so they're going to be standing up the whole environment, and they fall in the category of slower UI tests, probably at the top of the pyramid. So let me ask a question, just because, so it's funny that we started this conversation out with like, do you test? And we all sort of gave a, a huge range of answers. And I think one of the things that I at least know, my background is a release engineer, and I'm sure Seth had this experience too, where it's kind of like the release engineers and the QA people were always off kind of in the corner when it was release engineers. And they were kind of siloed in a similar way that operations people were often siloed. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, what has changed in the world where we should start caring about testing? Like, we should know the difference between functional and non-functional tests and be able to kind of talk about that. What what changed? Like, like why do, you know, people should care, I think, but why? So the, I guess to, to kind of follow up on that, because that was totally my experience, as, as you know, because I've, I've told you this before. Um, we, but... we over scotch. <laughs> Yeah, over lots of lots of scotch. But so what I love is that the testing pyramid, at least the one that I'm looking at, has this basically like Illuminati-ish eye at the top. And the eye is supposed to represent visual testing or, you know, like visual-based GUI uh, testing, yeah. so manual stuff. So so when I was talking about the game stuff earlier, that eye is basically the whole pyramid. Like that's it is the, it yeah. is the totality yeah. of the pyramid. And that's and so that's why I test so much is because I came from a place where it was chaos and came into an environment like so so you know in in kind of like the chef and ruby world where there were all these great frameworks for testing and so i was like i'm going to just bury my you know I, the cookbook may be but it is going to be well tested and, and I think, and it became important for me to learn those differences between like integration testing to like, you know, unit testing quick and fast, integration testing if I'm doing something that's going to change the behavior and then, you know, anything and then actually standing it up in an environment. But having that kind of like tool chain for me made all the difference. And then it, there's no reason like to not write tests. Like I don't check anything in that isn't passing the tests or at least merge anything. Yeah. Well, so that's interesting from the perspective, and this is sort of then the other question I have. You know, you were talking about, Mike, when we were talking about the test pyramid, UI being the top kind of flaky, slowest test, hardest to do that sort of thing. What is the UI test when you're not testing something that's, does Netflix do UI quote unquote tests? I mean, part of, you know, in all of the uh, stuff about Netflix or for some reason I'm thinking of Package Cloud, right? Do they do like, there's, you know, when you're talking about operations and infrastructure, there's not really a UI. How I does that? Just me watching Netflix. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I mean, like, I guess when you say... How does that fit in, right? I think that's more a a full stack test. So if you're talking about infrastructure, a unit test would be extremely fast. It would test just the behavior that's written inside, like, a a chef cookbook. But, like, an acceptance test for that, which is the analogous to, like, a UI test, would stand up the whole infrastructure and actually test... I think it's Converge. Would actually test that on a real box and verify that actually worked. I think Test Kitchen tends to fall in that category where it's going to be slower. You know, it's probably not going to be as flaky, but you're not going to get that fast feedback you really get from unit tests because unit tests should return in like a sub-second. Yeah. And so you can run a lot of... Yeah, in the chef world, it's kind of like the difference between doing chef spec and just testing your resources versus doing the test kitchen, the full, you know, test kitchen run that does like, I'm going to spin up everything in EC2, which takes, you know, can take forever. Uh, Chef in the local mode or the Y run mode can take longer than I'd like it to a lot of times. Yeah, and Y run is is such a liar. I don't, I don't don't trust it. That's, and that's on, and that's why I actually, I would spend so much more time running test kitchen in the cloud because, you know, I don't, it's, I'm not having, you know, these are magic machines in the sky because like why run mode, uh, Sean O'Mara, who, who I work with, wrote a great article. It's, I think it's old now, but it was kind of like, it was like lies, damn lies and, and dry run modes. And <laughs> he compared, God, it was like CF engine and chef and some other ones. And it was all the different dry runs and like how these things are, they lie, they, they're, they're best intentions, but like they do, they lie. And then you can actually get the system into a state where it thinks that it totally should have done all of these things and then does something completely different in, in actuality. So Yeah, because unless you go to the effort of making sure that your, you know, chef resources support Y run mode, it's not gonna do a thing, which is right. <laughs> it's it's like, oh, this is great, except I'm the only person doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I wanted to ask you something on that note of the the unit test and and the fast feedback. So uh, this is an anecdotal story, uh, and of course I won't name names, but I worked with someone in their next life. They they were an I guess they were a manager at Netflix, and I'm not picking on Netflix, but what I thought was oh, interesting. God, this is about me. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. No, I worked with them, and they weren't at Netflix, but they were saying they did not care about unit tests at all, and they weren't even gonna. And I've actually told this story on the podcast before, but they're like that. I don't care about unit tests at all. All I care about is the integration tests because that's the only thing the customer cares about. And so they actually didn't even set up doing unit tests on the build infrastructure. And I and as I was there as a consultant at the time, and I was like, um, but that's what your developers care about. Like, where's the? Yeah. So I was gonna say is that like it's interesting too because like I can go back and forth on unit tests when it comes to like infrastructure things. Like, are unit tests worthwhile for like Chef, you know, or Puppet or anything like that? But as I chat with more and more developers, like. I kind of go to that side where, you know, you don't need unit tests. You absolutely don't. But if you want to have that quick feedback loop, which we all kind of strive for, like, I don't know how else you do it because otherwise you're just going to wait for, you know, deploying or spinning up or provisioning whatever. Like, I always felt like the whole point is to have a very quick way to tell you when you've broken something, you know, kind of critical. So yeah, if someone says they're, they're, they don't believe in unit tests, I, I, I quickly realize they're probably doing it wrong. I mean, <laughs> that's probably a really good point. Too. I, I want to, f- and I love finding those people and sitting down with them and hearing their explanation and then showing them that they're wrong. Especially, I mean, unit tests. Well, so what? What, tests what are my personal? What, what's wrong? Like, and what I mean by that is like, what do you find like that people are doing wrong with unit tests in infrastructure or in applications? What What are the common like mistakes? Because the the thing I see in the test pyramid that's interesting is, and you, to your point, it's like you actually want to push as many tests down to the fast feedback loops and also the automated part and the importance of automating those tests. So what are people generally doing wrong where they get 
Because I've had that, like, people hate on unit tests too, and I don't get it. It seems like we had that argument and unit tests won, but there still seems to be some holdout. Yeah, I mean, for me, the biggest, and this kind of goes back to the article on TDD in, in the gaming world, is that there's frameworks that the teams are using, it, you know, prohibit them from doing proper unit testing. So if, if, if I'm talking about, like, object-oriented code, like in Java, for instance, doing things like writing static methods and initializing things statically in the background means that there's only there's a singleton or one only one instance running on that JVM, you're going to make it very hard for someone to test. And if your whole framework that you're making one use follows that pattern, no one's going to want to write unit tests because they can't. They have to they have to work around that. So an organization can basically stop engineers from writing unit tests by forcing them down one path or another with frameworks or architectures. So and that, that's the biggest thing. And then two, having developers not know how to write code that is testable, and which falls in the same category. Gotcha. Okay. So like decoupling your components so that they're actually calling each other through interfaces and then using those interfaces the dependencies like those are the types of things and so it comes down to a lot of times testability of your code is a design problem and, and testable mm. code is a good design for your code it occurs to me that people always talk you know there's that tweet that's been going around about instead of a poorly designed monolith now we have a bunch of poorly designed microservices it yeah. seems to me that this the unit testing would be one of the most useful ways and most important things to focus on if you wanted to move your application to a more microservice architecture. So, so this, so I was actually going to yeah. bring something like this up, which is I, I was going to mention we hadn't we hadn't discussed this yet, but one of the things that I like the most about unit tests is the confidence it gives you in being able to change Holy things. Holy cow! It's amazing. It's awesome. it's right because you like you trust. It's like I've got this. You know, it's just kind of the, you know, the, the, I mean, the very fundamental basis of having more data on which to make your decisions. And so, like, when you want to change, like, that's awesome. There's I a, feel like there was a great line from someone who, it's definitely not me, so I'm repeating it, but it was basically like, without tests, you're not refactoring, you're just changing shit. Yeah, and I always remember that one because it's like every time someone's like, "Hey, I'm about to make like whatever these changes," it's like, and I think you're right, which is like if you don't have that safety net, and that's always where I go back to the unit testing. Why, man, like these unit tests are great to have because I'm about to like refactor this whole cookbook, and I have no idea, you know, what's gonna break. You gotta make sure though that your tests aren't giving you, you know, a false sense of security because I've seen that happen where you know the programmers don't know how to write tests, and then they're like, "Yep, the tests all pass," and the tests aren't actually testing like anything useful. So again, it goes back to like, do people know how to write tests and how to you know write testable code? Yeah, I, I love finding tests or unit tests that have absolutely no assertion in them. So they're not actually they're running a whole bunch of stuff, standing up a uh, platform, and then they assert nothing. <laughs> well, so I actually wanted to bring because that's when you said unit tests are really important and the the fast feedback is really important. It occurred to me there is one counterexample where it's not, and, and unit tests are actually bad, and I'm, I'm sure we've all run into this, and Catherine, this is another example of exactly what you were talking about. We've all seen those tests that aren't pass or fail. They, they have like an orange state or a yellow state where it's like, well, you know, and oftentimes they're like performance unit tests or something yeah. where it's like, well, you know, they're kind of, they're flaky and they, you know, or you've got a test that flaps back and forth between red and green and red and green. And then those are the tests that people start ignoring. And you're ignoring tests. People just get used to ignoring tests. And yeah. at that point, I think you just need to burn all the tests to the ground and start over. <laughs> so, so you said to Paul, I, I think those wouldn't be unit tests. And that's the key. So and anytime it's it's not a binary result, true, false, or anytime it's flaky, that's immediately set a smell that it's not a unit test, right? Gotcha. Okay. Well, and the other thing, I mean, could you kind of pose the question, like, why do we automate tests? Why bother, you know, pushing them, that the testing down? That would seem to be 
the solution to that problem. They may be automated, but there's still some flakiness somewhere that's not reproducible, right? Right. I mean, and that, that's kind of why I broke it up to functional and then I, the, the illities, the, the performance and the, the reliability and stuff, I think those are a lot harder to test reliably and repeatedly. And I think that's why things like Chaos Monkey came out. Right. Um, they kind of forced you to do that, right? Yeah, exactly. So you then have to design with the idea that something's just going to fail in production and, and it will happen eventually, so uh, prepare for it. Yeah. Rather than it might happen. But yeah, I, I, functional tests are much easier, I, I find, with... They, they just they will return binary results, for sure. And if they don't, that's a smell that's not a unit test and that you could probably, quote, like, as you said, Paul, push it down. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm, that's probably one of the hardest parts, right, is that, that process of pushing those tests down because there's sort of a... People need to invest in it, so there's a cultural and company culture and engineering culture. There's also a, what you were talking about. There's a, it has design implications, yeah. uh, design decision implications. It's got framework implications. It's got automation implications. Yeah. Um, I, there's also the the collaboration or DevOps kind of perspective on this, which is the testing team needs to be working with the engineers because unit tests should be written by developers. And there are there is a place for QA engineers to write tests and automate tests, but that's they should be asking the question, this test I'm about to write, can an engineer write it as a unit test? And if the answer is yes, then they hand it off. So there's that collaboration between QA and, and, and oh, engineers. Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind um, of getting into a cultural thing as well, because yeah. I think with the you know the, the myth of the rock star developer, you know they don't want to write tests. They just want to hack on code all day. So they're really going to push back against the idea that they have to be the ones to write tests. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I've seen. Is even if you get the QA folks like willing to to go out and actually like start writing tests, like they're like, oh yeah, we'll write this part, and the developers they're just like, no, we don't we don't have time for that. They, they just keep moving forward. And that's that's where it kind of like totally falls apart, especially when you're like the release engineer. You're trying to enforce these things, yeah. um, and you be, you get to be the bad guy. You're like, I'm not pushing any builds until people fix. You know, the pain will continue until the build quality improves. Right. Uh, and that's like unfortunate that you end up having to be the bad guy. But it's it's one of those like necessary evils. I feel like in in some environments, it's great when so, you have environments where that's not the case. So yeah, that actually brings up an interesting point. I mean, you were talking, uh, Mike, about the DevOps and the collaboration. Um, I actually was in an environment once where one of the engineering managers there was telling me about, oh, I, I was able to reproduce what our entire QA team did in, you know, it took them 12 months and I did it in 45 days. And and I was thinking to myself, it's like, um, you realize I'm in the room and you're bad-mouthing like an entire team. And <laughs> the reason I tell that story is because this there is sort of that no-ops corollary as well where it's like people got all uppity about, oh, oh my gosh, no-ops, what does that mean? We, we are not saying, oh, the developers should write all the tests, they should be unit tests, and QA can go f*** themselves. That's not what we're saying at all. Right. Right. Yeah. And no, I think I'm not, that, I'm not, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and that I think that message is often either lost or hard. It's kind of lost in the shuffle because it does mean that when you get to an organization like like when you you look are focusing on quality and feedback loops, it does mean that the roles again, like in DevOps, roles are going to change a little bit. You yeah. might actually have developers writing those unit tests, and you might be focusing on unit tests, but it doesn't mean the other stuff you can just like ignore and and be like, we have no QA, right? We have no quality because that's basically where you're going, right? We have no quality, no ops, no quality, no nobody. 
just well, my, my argument against engineers should write tests and no QA person should exist is that, I mean, how many times have you met an awesome QA engineer that could just find bugs in something? That's where, Q, like, testing is an art, like, really good testers. And, and the, I think by pushing tests down and having engineers do what they're good at, which is writing code, and automated tests is writing code, you free up your QA team to find the really thorny bugs, to, to, really, to really pound on a system and really do the, the weird things that someone, some user might do, but you never thought about testing for. Right. I and think that's how I see it. Like, it's it's frees them up to actually do the hard stuff. Right. And then, the, the, you know, that's interesting, right? There's that corollary, again, with operations people. We're not saying, well, the developers are just going to carry the pagers and they'll deal with everything. What we're saying is it frees up the operations people to build the pipeline that HP right. has patented exactly. or do those tools that really facilitate what the developers need to get done. I wanted to ask or, or point out you, because you linked us, and we'll link this, of course, in the show notes. You pointed us, like, this is not hand-wavy, let's feel good about testing, there's research that it speeds up those feedback loops. I've often cited this, and I would love to hear if people have have since refuted this Microsoft research paper, and I think the first reason is because of being a Java guy, I, I always like saying, hey, I, I'll actually cite something from Microsoft, there you go. <laughs> but this paper essentially proves that teams that have done test-driven development, which we haven't really touched on the difference between that and unit testing, but test-driven development were able to go faster in the long run than teams that actually did development and then testing at the end, that focused on testing, as in, as a, a la waterfall. Mm-hmm. And this solidified it for me, and, and I had been a proponent of TDD for a long time. I will not, I will never walk into an environment again and say, we need to do TDD because it needs to be, it's like some, it's something that someone needs to experience and feel, it, it, you can't be told about it, right? Like you just need to, to, to feel and understand the value of TDD. But so let's talk a little bit about TDD, test-driven development. Give, what's the 30-second version for people that aren't familiar with it, especially if they are coming from an ops background or, or a really sure. engineering background? Yeah, so test-driven development essentially is writing your test before you write the code that you're going to test, which sounds backwards. But uh, the idea is that you're not writing... When you, when you think about testing, don't think about tests as a test. Think about tests as behavior. And your tests... The way you write it is, I want my code to do something. And that's how you're going to write your tests. So I'm defining up front the behavior I want my code to exhibit. And then you write the code to actually implement the, the test, the, to validate the test. So it's right, the, the cycle that TDD talks about is test, code, and refactor. And then your refactoring is the changing of the design. So you're actually able to separate out the behavior you want the code to exhibit from the design of the code underneath. By creating a test first, you create this safety blanket saying, I can change the design. And, and I think Pete said it. I have confidence now I can refactor the design of my code without changing the behavior of my code. No code is going to be written until there is a failing test first. And then you write the code and then the test starts passing. Yeah. Right. So I was, I was just about to ask that because that is the part that I think seems scary. It certainly seems scary to me when you make a, when you basically say the test will fail. We will always, this process, there will always be failure. Yeah. You know, there's, this actually reminds me of, I I don't consider myself to be any sort of programmer as much as an ops person who has to write scripts from time to time, and the language of choice is Ruby just because I spend so much of my time in Chef, but I remember when trying to learn more about Ruby, there was a, like, Ruby Cohen's where basically to learn, you basically write passing tests like right. they give you a bunch of failed tests and you have to write the passing test and I actually like found it extremely helpful because you're you know basically writing the solution and at first it's very like it seems obvious 
but what it, it helps, it, in my mind at least, it was really helping me understand like what the code should be doing so that I could basically, in my head, kind of calculate out what you know the result should be. I did those as well, and I found that being able to see the change of what I did was really helpful. Yeah. So, so I mean, like writing writing tests like that, where you're actually writing, it, getting you thinking about your code like that. I mean, that's something that that became apparent for me as well. Where as when I'm writing lots of like cross-platform stuff. So when I'm you know I'm writing this test, it's like, all right, I need to write this test, and it needs to pass on all these platforms, and you know for a package, I know it's going to listen on this you know particular port. And, and, you know, this service needs to be running, and then I'd see it failing, but it'd be failing because it's like, oh, right, I need to do this for, you know, FreeBSD or something like that. And that just, yeah, that kind of, like, instant feedback of, oh, yeah, I got, or maybe not instant feedback, but, you know, oh, yeah, I totally missed that instead of having to, like, push that out into the wild and then getting a bug report and then having to, you know, spelunk. Right, well, so this this brings up a really interesting point because I think a lot of times the next question sort of that is in my mind, so we've talked about testing, we've talked about kind of how to do it, um, Mike and and there's the I think a lot of people might ask well who should do the testing and it sounds like there's certainly a role for operations people to like you know when we talk about infrastructure as code now there needs to be some tests behind that so I want to talk a little bit about that but to your point Seth what I found interesting is is when we're talking about infrastructure it's not so much like a game or a website where like you know somebody's gonna walk into some room that nobody tested or a website somebody's gonna click on something in a weird order or in an application right it's the weird platforms it's core OS or FreeBSD and I know Pete you have a story about all of the weird FreeBSD stuff that you had to support with Chef and you and Seth having your kind of hipster op- operating systems that you had to support. I prefer <laughs> to call them artisanal bespoke operating systems. <laughs> right, right, Mike? I mean, that's the thing we're talking about where it's not so much actually necessarily users uh, in an operations context that are that you have to support weird use cases because of users. It's like weird infrastructure cases. Yeah, I mean, anything that can break, you should be testing. Anytime you write logic, you should be writing an automated test for that. So, yeah, if, if you have logic in there for bespoke artisanal operating systems, then by all means, have a bespoke artisanal test. <laughs> I need to go write some bespoke tests right now. Be right back. <laughs> So what does that look like, uh, Pete? Uh, walk us through when you were d- doing uh, deployment of infrastructure and testing. Infrastructure testing is always like tricky because you usually have multiple systems that all interact with each other. And I think the thing that I found most helpful when I was doing this in the past and even when I do it now at, at ThreatStack currently is you know leveraging a lot of the tools that exist like you know, Test Kitchen obviously is great if you're in the chef world. It does actually support Puppet, although kind of not really. I think they're improving that. But also things like ServerSpec, which ServerSpec is really amazing even if you're not using any of the kind of popular config management tools because it will connect over SSH and basically run all these tests for you. And it really opens the door for being able to kind of test your changes and being able to like run those often. So in the past, we actually used ChefSpec really heavily, mainly because we had so many different platforms and whether the platforms were multiple versions of FreeBSD, which interestingly enough, actually do change how Chef runs on it. Also like different versions of Debian or Ubuntu or even CentOS. So in the past, ChefSpec was actually huge for the multi-platform stuff. I mean, 
being able to having to test across five different OSs when you want to make one small change, like I can't even imagine waiting for all those things to happen. Well, and those are always famous last words, right? One small change. I'm just gonna make this yeah. one small change. Well, it's it's that great line which I've absolutely used on this podcast in the past, which is like that time that Pete took down like 30% of the global DNS internet because we just pushed this one small change and it like paused DNS queries for like 20 seconds, which that's kind of okay. And and that's There's like two DNS root DNS servers, right? It's fine. It's long it's long as you're up within the shortest TCL, right? That's all that matters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's always that thing that you don't test that is going to get you. And so I right. think you know, I think Mike was straight on. It's like test everything that can break and pro tip test everything because everything right. will break. The story you always tell Pete that I love yeah, that people don't think of, uh, you were talking about you had for your environment, I think this was at Dyn in one of the presentations you gave, you were talking about the fact that it's not even so much that things can break. It's innocuous things that are, are actually working as designed in the standard environment. So the example you always give, and I tell the story all the time because people love it, is you have a cookbook like Apache and when you do an Apache upgrade, it restarts Apache. Well, if you've got the dependency thing in the init scripts, it's going to restart the name server. And the problem with that is if you happen to be serving root DNS traffic, restarting the name server, A, is a problem, and B, like, doesn't happen quickly. It takes it takes a while, right? So yeah, it's, it's definitely frowned upon yeah. by most people. And so that's something where it's working as designed, but not in your environment for your... Yeah, I mean, for, for, for most people, I mean, that is working as designed, and that's how they want it to happen. Happen. But when you are serving global DNS for some of the biggest names, which we were absolutely doing, that's definitely not an okay thing. And so <laughs> there was so, so much testing that was put in. I mean, we were all extremely paranoid. And so there was the chef spec testing. There was the server spec testing. There was staging environments. I mean, we, we put it through, even for us, small changes would take days to really go out there because, like, you can't, you really can't f*** up. DNS. It's bad because like everything will break. Yep. Yep. So I wanted to talk a little bit uh, before we move on to, to probably a question that a lot of people probably have. Uh, what what kind of culture do you find needs to be there to facilitate uh, like a healthy test culture? What what does that look like? People have to you know actually care about not just you know did they write the code, but but how it affects other. Other people, you know, we're talking about breaking down the silos. You know, developers have to care about the quality of their code, and if their code breaking will, you know, page somebody else. I think that's a lot of it. The page test. Yeah, I like it. Seriously. I once 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 I started forcing developers to wear the pager after being like the release engineer slash ops person slash whatever because I'm the one who had the pager. I gave it back to them and that was a satisfying <laughs> feeling. I was gonna say I think the other part of the culture is like a culture that like will teach and train people how to write tests. Yeah. Like there's nothing worse than having someone say writing bad tests and well there there is something worse, not writing tests. But <laughs> It, but writing bad tests and giving a false sense of, of confidence that the actual code should work. And then having nowhere to go and then saying, I hate unit tests, and then saying, I only want to focus on integration tests because I'm more comfortable with that and it's not hard. Having a culture that will support you and teach you how to write unit tests, that's, you know, that, that, that I think is one of the biggest things. Value the, the investment in time. Any culture that doesn't support learning and giving people the, the tools and the opportunities to learn how to effectively do their job is not a culture I want to be in. I, I, I totally it's not a culture that's going to win either, right? I mean, we've, we've seen that played out many a time. 
For yeah, sure. I, t- I totally, I totally like love bragging about when I I get to hang out with like some, you know folks at Chef, and I didn't know how our spec worked, and I just sat down, I just sat, you know, we did a Zoom, and then just kind of like sat there, and it was like, oh, so this is why this is important, and just <laughs> it was, it was, but it was like that was a a valid use of our time was to spread knowledge of our spec, um, and I returned the favor by showing somebody how to do server spec, and it's and when you show somebody how easy that te- testing can be, to, to Mike's point, like you gotta, you gotta have or sorry, Catherine's point. Uh, you gotta have a culture that like wants to share testing and and spread that knowledge. Kind of um, share share ownership of it. Right, right. It's not just one person's thing. And if, if you learn how to write tests, then maybe you can help you can help out on other pieces of code because you understand the testing framework. Right. Well, you know, so it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about myths of DevOps that we hear, and I think one of the common myths that we hear a lot is that you know you can never say no to things. Everything is sort of like oh we're working together and it's very positive and like like continuous delivery pipelines, you can't say no. And it, it occurred to me that I think one of the yellow to red flags is actually the story, Seth, you tell it all the time, I've experienced it, where you start playing games with continuous integration and now it would be the continuous delivery pipeline where it's like, oh, you know, can we just, yeah, it failed test, but ship that build anyway. We just have to get it out the door. Nah, you gotta be a hard You gotta be a hard well, and that you have to have a culture that facilitates that and understands that that it actually is okay to say no because the no is actually protecting the organization that the the, the agreements that it has made with itself. And once right. you start breaking down, it's like a death by a thousand cuts, right? Once you start breaking those down, well, it's easier. I'm sure you've seen this. It's like, oh well, we shipped that build and that test was broken. I I want to pass on my test that sometimes fails too, right? And then it's a, it's the epitome of slippery slope. Well, when we uh, when I was working at uh, in a university environment um, and working you know in in the identity management space, so like you know high value credentials and and critical access systems you know, or mission critical, I guess would be the, the term. You had to have that kind of testing, and you kind of had to have the part of our part like part of our acceptance test before getting to production were that certain things you know check, there was never it was it was a no go if if all of these things didn't go as as a checklist like it was an actual contract with the kind of other departments at the university almost right well and you see that with how google does their you know the the team that built the service operates it and then they hand it off to sre i'm assuming that you know unit tests and and testing framework and what that looks like is a big part of that handoff like have you written the things that makes this operable as a infrastructure service yeah well, I, think, I, think, I think in their case they own it so it's like whatever you feel like you can do to make you have confidence that when you push something it's good you know that's on you because when it goes down it's on you right so right but when they hand it off to the srte team right. and that is a different team i'm sure a part of that conversation is show us your unit test show us exactly. what those unit tests actually do when you run them this is going to work the way you say yeah. it will. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. What, what what's that trust but verify <laughs> yeah. So the obvious question, Mike, and of course for the panel, the people are going to ask: When shouldn't you automate tests? When should you? When should you kind of say, well, you know, other than apparently developing a video game? I'm as a tier nervous role. about giving people a window, but like I think I, I always think it's important to write tests. But like if you're writing a, a minimum value product or, or you're spiking something, you want to just test something out. No need to write tests. Like we just had a hack day at Netflix, and and I wrote a test free service and I just the horror 
I know, I know. I was, I, my coworkers were actually saying, "What are you doing?" But you know, I quickly was the, the the desire to test quickly was validated for me because I realized I started breaking things and I didn't know where. And I realized, like, okay, I need to start writing you to test to figure out why things are breaking. And it's it's faster and it's easier. And now I wrote that test and it's done. But I think though, like spiking something short term is is the be- biggest example I would give. But there is nothing more permanent than you know some temporary code or some temporary yeah. thing. You don't have tests. You yes, gotta watch yeah. out for that. Yeah, so I think Dan North maybe uses the term spike and stabilize. And so the idea is like test something out, but then after we realize it's proven, that stabilize part is important, where I actually go back in and actually operationalize the code and, and, and add tests. Because there's nothing worse than a prototype that's in production. Well, it sounds like, and you said this yourself, Mike, you said there's some, in some sense a self-awareness as a developer or as a person writing the code where it's like, I am personally now being slowed down by not having unit tests, I'm tripping over myself. And that's kind of where, you know, you spike and maybe don't you do the unit tests, but you have to have that sort of self-awareness around, I'm now screwing myself up. And so I maybe should write some tests. But I would argue that like, if you've never written unit tests and you, you won't have that feeling because you haven't uh, experienced the value. Like so that's I, the danger zone. There. Yeah, exactly. So I would write, a, I, something would break and I'd be like, you know, a unit test would have caught that. And then I would cover that, that test case with a unit test. But if you Never had that experience, you don't, and you don't believe in unit tests. You're not going to ever have that that feeling. Now I have to ask. I saw actually recently. We'll link to this in the show notes just because it's kind of cool. We probably could have done the news and views on it, but uh, Netflix. Uh, one of the hack day items was Netflix running on an original Nintendo. Did they have a unit test? I don't know, but <laughs> I'll tell you what. That was awesome. It was awesome. We will link to that in the show notes. So uh, we'd love to hear from everyone in the audience about how they test, challenges that they have testing, and and if you have any feedback for us, tweet us at ShipShowPodcasts. Email us at crew at theshipshow.com. Let us know if we failed any unit tests, if we got anything wrong. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we have kind of an interesting segment. It's uh, one we don't do very often, but we have a special guest uh, joining us. I was able to interview Courtney Nash of O'Reilly and Associates. She is, if that name is familiar, she is the uh, one of the co-chairs of Velocity Conference, which is actually coming up May 27th through the 29th. But there are some changes this year to Velocity. And so she walked us through what the changes are, why there are changes, why it's important, and what it means for one of the premier conferences that is in our industry and talks about operations and IT operations and, and the velocity of change and development in that. And so here's that conversation with Courtney. I'm here with Courtney Nash, O'Reilly's Director of Strategic Content. That's a very official sounding title. It's like you have uh, the nuclear launch codes with you. Yeah, to the to the content missiles. <laughs> the content missiles, yeah. And also you are Velocity Conferences, well, one of the chairs that you, I was going to say co-chairs, but you corrected me, it's tri-chairs. We like tri-chairs. It's kind of like the three tenors, except yeah. John can't sing. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, Steve Souders and John Allspaw who yep. are, are our audience probably are familiar with as well. How are you doing? I'm doing good. We're, we are in the throes of proposal reviewing for Velocity Santa Clara, which is which is fun. Awesome. Uh, yeah. yeah. And there are some pretty sweeping changes with Velocity coming up this year. So Velocity, there's there's three conferences, right? There's, uh, or four, there's four conferences. Really four, yeah. 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 And uh, so it's Santa Clara, New York, Amsterdam this year. Yep. 
and the Europe show. So last year it was Barcelona, this year it's Amsterdam. Yeah, and, and Beijing. Right. Right. So tell us a little bit about the the change. Yeah, well, I mean it's it you know, things evolve, right? And mm-hmm. so and, and I always like to think of, of uh velocity as reflecting an industry that that, that you know experiments and, and changes accordingly. And so you know, the conference really started from this notion. This was back when actually when Jesse Robbins founded it with Steve Souders. They sort of, uh, to make a, a long story short, sort of looked at each other one day and were like, oh, you know, we got these two different tribes, but they're all working on kind of the same problems. Why don't we you know, get together and have a conference about it? You know, because previously you used to have lots of operations-ish conferences. Well, not really that many. And lots of developer-centric you know, centric conferences. And it, so it was sort of the beginning of DevOps stuff, right, mm-hmm. in conference form. And a lot of things happened along the way. And we wanted to reflect where we feel like the industry has kind of gone. And, and so one of, the, one of the things we're trying to do this year is actually sort of bring the business crowd in a little bit, which freaks people out, I think, a little bit. We actually did sort of a roundtable on this at Velocity Barcelona last year. Some of the folks from Etsy actually uh, sort of hosted it. And, and and what I thought was really funny was we, we sort of had the topic of like, we're going to add some business stuff to Velocity. And people, like I said, some people were a little, you know, a little trepidatious about that. And I believe one person even said something like, you know, do we really want to mix that? You know, is it going to change the whole nature of the conference? Like, you know, I don't think they really said, do we want, quote unquote, those people there? But but another person responded by saying, you know, that's that that's the same kind of way of saying once upon a time, do we really want to have a conference that has the developers and the operations people at it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's sort of the natural evolution uh, of, of it, you know, or what people like to call star ops, if you will. Right. Which is that, uh, you know, a lot of companies are have woken up and realized that they want they want to be able to operate the way that some of these DevOps-ish companies do, and you you know you then you're outside the realm of just DevOps anymore. I think, and you know you're you're trying to look at how do you work those kinds of practices and ways of thinking into all lots of other areas of the business. Mm-hmm. There's that aspect of it, and there's also the fact that you know at the conference every year we still have people saying, well, how do I go back to my company and convince people this stuff is important? And so we thought, well, instead of putting all the onus on you to go back to your company and tell these people why this stuff is important, why don't we get them there and let them see it for themselves? So. Right. Well, when you say, you know, bringing the business kind of into the fold of it, that is, I think, a thing that we hear time and again, that part of the the problem, in fact, I think we just talked about it last episode, part of the problem and the issue that was kind of frustrating for ops engineers was that there wasn't a, a good understanding of the connection to the business uh, and even developers too, sometimes or you know, I mean, they may have a little more insight because they're working on feature work, but there wasn't this connection to the business, which made it really hard to understand understand why some decisions might be made or you know uh, one of the examples Sasha always loves to give is you know making people work around the holidays or making changes to websites like during the holidays and and she worked at, you know at a big retail giant and and you know she was talking about one of her mentors said you know that we we exist solely to support the business so if they want to do that we need to make that happen and uh-huh. I think that's been a, a real revelation kind of on on all of the people that are going through DevOps on the technical side of the, the world. So it seems like, you know, it makes sense to kind of help us level up our game talking about business stuff. You know? Yeah. So that, you know, we're kind of testing some of the waters out with that. And, and, and the other thing that we're doing, but which I, we always, we sort of chuckle that it took us this long to get around to this was we talk a lot about DevOps at Velocity, but we still had a dev track and an ops track. <laughs> the tracks are siloed right so it was like what no we we gotta we gotta we gotta walk our talk here um and so 
that's been, uh, no one will really see that until the conference shows up and it may or may not be a big deal, but to us even organizing it, it's, we've, we're sort of eating our own DevOps dog food because all of a sudden now we're all reviewing a lot more proposals and mm-hmm. we're trying to work out how this stuff's all going to fit together. And so it's a, it's a tiny window into trying to do the kinds of things that we talk about, you know, sort of across an organization, that organization being the folks of us who, you know, who plan the conference. So that's, that's an interesting aspect of it as well. And to make, to make that very clear, you were saying uh, the, that's, a, that's one of the other big changes is that there's not those siloed tracks as it were this year. Yeah. And I, you know, this isn't a shocking thing. Other conferences, many other conferences do this, you know, they'll tag sessions or they'll give you, you know, sort of ways to figure out the kinds of things you want to go to. So in some ways it's more of a social experiment, I would say than anything, but I think that'll be a change for folks. And we're, we're bringing in some different, you know, sort of focus areas and content too, that, that we haven't covered as much. We hear from people year in and year out that it, it was a revelation, uh, you know, on, on, on sort of Steve's side that how much you needed to pay attention to what happens on the client end of things. This is on the performance and the, and the development side. But along the way, we started doing a lot of stuff in the cloud, data centers, everything started changing significantly. And the, the very nature of how people handle their networks and their data centers and all of that, you know, and databases sort of changed. And, and so we're trying to reflect some of that as well. So, you know, so we're bringing in some more content around network automation and database optimization and, and other ways to make things fast at scale, essentially. So... Right. It's, it's interesting. I mean, the, the way you put it, the uh, star ops that kind of is, is, and, and that's always been a, a fun, you know, you hear uh, talks that are biz ops and HR right. ops, you know, kind of uh, bringing that. And yeah, you know, um, I, I was noticing uh, the kind of the big, a couple of big areas that stood out to me, this, this idea of end to end optimization, uh, you know, we're talking about content areas, end to end optimization, and then also deliberately unstable systems. When I, and when I read that, I was like, I, I, <laughs> I know who put that in there. Papa Allspa put that in there, didn't he? No, he did not. Oh, really? No, but, but, but. I know that's one of his favorite topics. Well, and John and I talk about this kind of stuff. So there's no doubt that there are like cells in my brain that have been directly influenced by John and, you know, the conversations we have. That one actually, what's really funny about that is this is one of those moments where you go, oh, uh, yeah, we were right all along because John and other people have been talking about this stuff for years now. And then all of a sudden Gartner pops up, you know, I think I, I included this in some of the things I wrote about it. Gartner pops up and says, you know, by the year 20, whatever, X amount of you know companies will be have deliberately unstable systems. And I'm like, well, all right. Not that I think that Gartner is always necessarily the uh, arbiter of truth, but but it's interesting to see something more mainstream acknowledging the kinds of ideas that, that we've been talking about. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's my favorite one. That's kind of my pet uh, area because it, it sounds kind of crazy, but when you think about Netflix and Chaos Monkey and those kinds of things that people have been doing, that was the bleeding edge then, but it's going to start to become much more commonplace. And, and, and so we, we want to give people... Yeah, and it's always funny when you finally get that sort of realization and that buy-in. It's kind of like people say, "Oh, we want we want the you know resiliency of Netflix. Can we try Chaos Monkey?" And a lot of times, there's that that kind of uncomfortable conversation on the dev and the ops side around, uh, "Are you sure you really want that?" Yeah. Like, <laughs> like we could totally release it, but release the Chaos Monkeys. But I don't, uh, you know, we might have a little bit of work to do there. But I mean, it's a good learning for everyone. Yeah. So Velocity Conference Santa Clara May. 27th through the 29th this year. Yep. And we'll see you there. Yeah, I'm excited. All right. Thanks for joining us here on the Ship Show, Courtney. Thanks.
So that is Velocity Conference. That is coming up once again. That's uh, May 27th through the 29th. Also, a bunch of ship show co-hosts. Looks like we're going to be at ALM Forum up in uh, Seattle. That's May 18th. Yeah, 18th through the 22nd. Who all is going to be there? I'm going to be there. J. Michael McGar will be there. Pete Cheslock will definitely be there. Awesome. And and maybe we'll drag Seth along because he's up there. Seth, uh, you have to come. <laughs> I'll make sure I put it on my calendar. <laughs> First time up there in Seattle. Oh, you've never been to Seattle? No, no. Oh, well then now, Seth, you gotta help, yeah. help us do oh, Seattle well. right. All right, that's well, that's funny. It, sh- it should be uh, weather should be getting nice at the time of year too. Yeah, it should be, it should be pretty. Cool. And of course, DevOps days, various DevOps days coming up. Uh, I will be speaking actually at DevOps days, as I mentioned, DevOps days, Rockies. I am super excited. That is April twenty third and twenty fourth. Um, it'll be fun to go home. I'm I'm really uh, stoked about that. Uh, Catherine, you mentioned DevOps Days New York coming up. Yeah, just uh, about a week after that, April 30th and May 1st. And then, of course, Austin, too, is coming up. Austin, Toronto, Washington, D.C., Amsterdam, and Minneapolis are all on the event calendar. And actually... I know DevOps Day Silicon Valley, we're putting all that together, and I think uh, we're, we're getting all the paperwork signed, so dates and such for that will be posted soon. Jennifer uh, Davis and I are working together along with a bunch of other people on that. So I want to give a special shout-out to the guys organizing the Washington, D.C. one. It's the first one. I'm kind of mad to miss it, but I think it'll be awesome. So Yes, and uh, it's it's really funny. I'm excited, too, uh, for that one because I know the people that are organizing. I know Nathan is helping out, and I know... I think it's it, it's being held at the Patent and Trade Office, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're doing, they're doing some cool stuff with DevOps. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, and also one last conference. We we would be remiss if we forgot Monitorama in June. I'm going That's back. Coming up. need to get my I, monitoring on for sure. Are you, are you going, Catherine? I am. I'm not speaking. I, but I will be there with non-speaking bells on. It's going to be great. <laughs> I, I am so there already. <laughs> I want to go, and the fact that you two are going may have just pushed me over the edge on that. Well, I'm going to be there too, so you're going to oh, not really have to Pete, come. Pete, I don't but care. Sex, <laughs> uh, you know, I gotta, I gotta toe the line. I see you. I see you too much already, Pete, and I don't like you. So <laughs> no, no, that's not true at all. Everybody, everybody loves Pete. All right, we would like to um, thank our sponsor for this episode, PagerDuty. If responding too slowly to failing unit tests is a problem for you, check out PagerDuty. They have a solution that can help with that. And so from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From Seattle, this is Seth signing off. Also from San Francisco today, this is Pete signing off. From the South Bay, Los Gatos, this is Mike signing off. And from Brooklyn, this is Catherine signing off. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.